today and the veterans all over the world and every church on this Sunday morning. Thank you for their service. Thank you for protecting them. Thank you for bringing them home. Thank you, God, for being with their families while they are apart. Thank you, God, for the sacrifice and the service that they exhibit, the role models they are. And God, together we pray for our nation and our armed forces, wherever they're serving, even now, protect them, God. Bring them home safely, and in the meantime, Father, I pray they would stand firm. Hold their ground, God, to protect the freedoms you have provided for us and for so many others across the world. And God, we pray this morning for those children and families that will receive these shoeboxes. To us, that's uh, it's just a small action, a small gift. We go to the store, we pick up products, we fill the shoebox, and off it goes. But God, you take what is small and you turn it into a remarkable ministry. You expand it and multiply it across the globe. You can use something as simple as a shoebox to bring a child and a child's family to faith in Christ. And we pray for that today. God, how we pray for your blessing on these shoeboxes as they go forth. And for every family that will receive them, every child that will receive them, God, I pray, Father, that you would cover that with grace, that you would use that in their family and in that child's life. You know already who's going to receive these shoeboxes. And, Father, we pray, God, right now for that child. Each shoebox, God, we pray for that child that will receive that shoebox. Use it in a mighty way in their lives. We pray for the servants that prepare and distribute those shoeboxes out of the United States and across the globe. We pray they would have uh, energy and, uh, and strength and confidence and the resources they need to make that happen. And God, we thank you so much that we can be part of this and so many other missions and ministries that touch lives in our nation and around the world. God, be with us this morning as we go to your word and open our eyes, God, of what it means to serve in a faithful church. I pray, Father, for myself as pastor. I pray for all of us, Father, as your flock in this place and time that we would be faithful to Christ. If there's one in this room or at home that's never trusted Christ as their Savior, let this be the day. Let this be the day that they give their life to Jesus. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, before we go, well, go ahead. If you have your Bible, pick it up. 1 Peter chapter 5 and hold your place there just a minute. We're turning to the book of 1 Peter where we've been, 1 Peter chapter 5. While you're turning there, uh, I want to mention to you, please be praying for my wife who is COVID positive. Uh, she was sick this past week and then got sicker and then found out why she was getting uh, worse is that she test tested negative for COVID a couple times last week, then tested positive this weekend. So, uh, and, and some of you are already sitting there thinking, so what are you doing here, brother? Um, well, I have tested negative three times since yesterday evening and this morning, uh, but I'm not going to run to the back and shake your hands and love on you after the service. Everybody okay with that? Yeah, I feel like you would be. So uh, be praying for her and for me as well. And be back tonight, 6 o'clock. Brother Kevin, in all his humility, how do you announce your own ordinance, right? Uh, but it is a great opportunity for us to participate in a major event, not only in Kevin and Casey's life, but in the life of our church. When we say God has called out an individual for ministry, and with that, God has brought that individual to ministry at First Baptist Church, that's a rare occasion. Please be here to participate uh, in this tonight. We have some guests that will be with us in the service as well. We pick up in 1 Peter chapter 5 as Peter is closing out the letter. This week and the next few weeks, 
We will walk carefully through chapter 5 as he wraps up the letter. And he turns his attention now to a, a, a healthy church in a hostile culture. He, he turns his attention inward to the church as a whole and how the church in a hostile world can remain healthy and in fact take up something of a defensive position against the hostility that comes from the outside in. Uh, now, when I read this, you're going to think, well, Pastor Bob planned this message for this morning, uh, the morning before the evening that Brother Kevin was going to be ordained. I, I want you to know that God did this. I actually did not know. Not only that it would fall on Veterans Day weekend, we're going to be talking about leadership, uh, but when I planned this series back in the spring, I did not think in my mind, you know, it wouldn't be cool if we could ordain somebody the night after I preached this message. God put all this together, and that's just how God works. He does that now and then. Let's call it a God nod. He does it now and then to remind us who's in charge and who's in charge of the schedule. And I think in this case, he did it this way to remind me that I'm not in charge uh, and uh, that pastors uh, function with a bit of humility at times as God leads us forward and leads the church forward. We get to see him do things that only God could do. And such as setting up a Sunday in which both the morning and the evening, we are in key passages of Scripture that speak to leadership pastors in the church. And we get to set apart a young man as a pastor at First Baptist Church. Isn't God good? Do you love how God works? So find with me First Peter chapter 5. We're going to start reading at verse 1 this morning, just the first few verses. As Peter says, th this is what you need to remember to be a healthy church in a hostile world, first and foremost, he's going to talk about the leaders, the pastors. And to give you a heads up, next he's going to talk about the enemy that we need to pay attention to, or more, more accurately, enemies. Uh, you may be surprised, if you're familiar with First Peter, you're thinking right away, well, I know what enemy you're talking about. Actually, there's more than one enemy that comes against the church from, or was within the church that Peter's going to point out in the days ahead. So first he starts with leadership, with pastors. Now, also, if you're familiar with, with a lot of what the Bible says about pastoral ministry and pastors, uh, you'll realize he doesn't say everything that the Bible says about pastors, about uh, a pastor's character or a pastor's service to the Lord or to the church. He's not trying to do that. Uh, what, he wants to, what he's doing is he's speaking to those pastors serving churches in a hostile world and reminding them of the things that matter most, of uh, how they should lead and how they can lead and what their priorities should be of leadership in a hostile world. And through that, I believe he'll speak to you also. You'll learn something about what God's perspective on pastors, but also God's perspective on you as you serve in the church in a hostile culture. So look there with me at 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. As Peter's wrapping up the message, uh, wrapping up the letter, this is what he says. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and witness to the sufferings of Christ, as well as one who shares in the glory about to be revealed. Shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There's an interesting question among church leaders and in blogs and on Facebook occasionally uh, that's rotating around in our culture with the rise of AI 
uh, steamrolling through technology in our culture. And the question is, in a variety of forms, is something like, well, why not use AI to write sermons? Uh, and on one occasion, a couple actually had AI perform. This was a few months ago, perform their wedding ceremony. I read a sermon that a non-pastor, a sermon he produced and posted on Facebook as having been produced completely by AI. And he said, what do we need pastors for? First of all, a sermon is not a speech. A sermon, what I bring to you, the Word of God on Sunday morning, is me with you learning from God. It comes from my heart, not just my head. It's not just about that. And I promise you, if AI replaces anything, the one thing AI will never replace is pastors. That's one job that needs a God-called man to do it. And from now till Jesus comes back or God calls us all home to be with him or whatever comes next, that will be true. And Peter gives us an example of why that is. He is speaking to people, to men of God, that God has called out to be pastors. And you'll notice the first thing he says in his command, shepherd God's flock among you. The term translated shepherd is, gives us our word pastor. Uh, but the first thing he notes is this is God's flock. Dear pastor, this is God's flock. It's not yours, it's God's. He has called you to be a steward, a shepherd, an overseer, an elder of this flock, but this is God's flock. And so the second thing you'll notice is he uses three different words, as does the Apostle Paul himself in 1 Timothy 3, three different terms for the same person in the same role. The shepherd is the pastor, and he refers to himself as an elder, uh, and he refers to the, to the shepherd as an overseer. The Apostle Paul does the same thing. This is the same person. We'll, we'll stay with pastor this morning. This is the same person, the pastor. Uh, but Peter acknowledges by these different terms uh, specifics about that role. The elder is a term that rose out of Judaism, uh, not as an official office, but the elder in Judaism was that that sage, that seasoned person, that person of wisdom, and they were, by definition, a little bit older. So uh, the, the younger Jewish men could go to them for wisdom and, and for guidance. In the early church, this was often the case as well. It was typically the older men that were called out to be pastors, and they therefore were often considered elders. That's why the Apostle Paul, when he talks to, Peter, uh, to Timothy, in the book of 1 Timothy, he says, don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth. Meaning that most of the time, the pastors, like Timothy, would be a little bit older than Tim. And Tim at that time was roughly probably around 30 to 32 years old. Don't let anyone look down on you because of your youth, Paul tells Timothy. But in speech, conduct, faith, love, and purity, be an example to those who believe. So Timothy was a valid pastor, a God-called man, but he was a little unusual in that he wasn't older. But Paul says, never mind, you're still an elder, you're still a pastor. Overseer is another common term used of pastors by Paul and by Peter. Here, overseer goes to the management of the flock, those day-by-day -day things that the, the, the shepherd has to do to take care of the flock. Grazing, feeding, shepherding, moving them around, cleaning up occasionally, 
those things the shepherd has to do. But it's all the same person, the same office. So Peter speaks to them. And in this passage, Peter unpacks for us a little bit about leadership in the Christian church, in, in any generation, but in particular, when the world outside is hostile. How should the pastor lead the church in a hostile culture? He says, well, there are three ways at least, three priorities at least, that pastor should have in leading the church in a hostile culture. First, he leads from experience, Peter says. He leads from experience. Notice when Peter starts out, he says, I am a fellow elder. Uh, if you go back and read your New Testament letters, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, the Apostle John, uh, you'll notice one thing, in particular with the Apostle Paul, sometimes he varies how he opens the letter and how he speaks of himself. And if he's speaking from a position of authority, he'll refer to himself as the Apostle. The Apostle Paul is writing to you. Pay attention. I have the authority to tell you what to do. The Apostle Peter has the same authority. He could do the same thing. He could open this statement saying, you tell all those other elders, I am the Apostle. And because I am the Apostle, here's what, I must, must, what they must do. That's called positional leadership or positional authority. It's the assumption that because I have the position, I can speak out of that position to tell you what to do. And Peter certainly had the right to do that, but that's not what he does in this case. Instead, in this case, he says, I want you to know that I'm a shepherd just like you. I want you to know that I've experienced the, experienced the sufferings of Christ just like you in this hostile world, and therefore I know I will experience the glory of God the reward of God to, for being a shepherd just like you have in this world. He starts from the place all pastors start. See, pastors don't start in the ivory tower. Our job is not to stand up on some pe pedestal and wag our finger and shout at you what to do. And we weren't saved differently from you. Well, let's get, get to the core here. I was saved just like you were saved. If you're saved by grace through faith, if you recognize you're a sinner, you repent of your sin, call out to Christ to save you, he will save you. I did that. And I didn't do that because, hey, if I do that, God's going to make me a pastor. No, I did that because I needed to be saved. So I became a Christian and a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, first and foremost, just like you. God called me from that to be a pastor. My experience in this world might be different, but I have problems in this world, just like you. I have problems with finances. I have uh, health issues and problems, and, and, and COVID comes after pastors' wives. I mean, we have all that. In short, pastors are just people that God called out among you to be your shepherd. It's a humbling thing to think about. So first and foremost, I, I lead from my experience with the Heavenly Father, my walk with Christ. And if a pastor can't lead from his walk with Christ, he needs to take a step back. But I lead from my walk with Christ. I'm in the Word of God every day, barring any circumstances that prevent it. I lead from that walk with Christ first, and then I go into the study to prepare to speak to you. I, I lead from that walk with Christ before I come to your house and pray with you 
and, and, and come alongside you in your times of struggle. I, uh, one of the most humbling, humbling things for me, and I've been doing this 31 years full time, is still the most humbling thing to get in my truck to drive to your house when I've gotten a call in the night or in the day of tragedy in your home. And I pray all the way, God, give me the words. Give me something to say. Because out of myself, I have nothing to say. But he does. He does. Pastoral ministry is not theoretical. It's not academic. It's the practice of discipleship applied to shepherding. Your life in Christ is not academic. It's not theoretical. It's not just about the books you read or you come and you sit in church. It's the practice of the Word of God in your life. It's doing discipleship that makes you a disciple. Not thinking about it. Doing it. Applying your faith and trusting Christ for great things ahead. I have a story I'd like to tell, and I've told it before, and some, some of you may have heard it, so... Uh, you'll recognize it right away. But back in 1988, when Kim and I were in Texas, yes, I'm that old, uh, I was starting my doctoral studies at Southwestern Seminary, and one of the first doctoral seminars I took was on Christian apologetics. I had about 10 guys in there, and the professor was John Newport, uh, who was a stellar minister and Christian apologist among Southern Baptists at the time. Dr. Newport had two earned doctorates, had been a pastor, had been an evangelist, and now was a professor uh, and the provost at Southwestern Seminary. This was actually my first year and my first seminar, so I was excited and I wanted to, I wanted to prove myself that at least I had half a brain. So here I was, sitting in this, in this seminar. Of course, we had to write papers, and you had to present your paper to the seminar, and they got to pick it apart after you presented your paper. And we were assigned different subjects in, in apologetics, and my subject was natural evil. Okay, uh, we understand there are two, evil, evil expresses itself two ways. One is moral evil, what people do to other people, and one is natural evil, those things that happen in this world that we can't control. Sickness, earthquake, hurricane, famine, so on. So I was writing a paper on natural evil. I wrote my paper, I presented it, and, and to, to great fanfare. I even remember the name of it. You, you want to know? It'll bless you. It'll make you feel all warm and good. Here it is, you ready? Pain, purpose, and the power of God, a systematic approach to the theoretical problem of natural evil. Isn't that great? So I presented the paper, and they asked questions and picked it apart. And when my time was done, two hours, when my time was done, John Newport, sitting at the head of the table, offered a few compliments on the paper. And right as time was running out, he said, let me ask you a question. I said, okay. He said, my neighbor is a woman dying of cancer right now. What did you learn in this paper that you can give me to help me minister to her? Yeah, I did that. Discipleship is not theory. Study is, be, is beneficial. We should study. We should learn. But it's in the grit and the grime of discipleship that we find out the faithfulness of God. I bring my experience of being a Christian to my pastoral ministry 
And that's the only thing I can bring. God's working in my life to help me see him work in your life. So first, the pastor leads from experience. Secondly, the pastor leads by example. The pastor leads by example, Peter says. Verse 2, shepherd God's flock among you, not overseeing, but out of compulsion, not overseeing out of compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not out of greed for money, but eagerly, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Uh, in fact, he's already set an example by not starting out invoking positional authority. And now in verse 2, he tells the shepherd the same thing. Don't invoke positional authority. Don't say, uh, well, I'm, I'm here doing my pastoral ministry. You've got to live your life on your own. You've got to do what you've got to do. He says, no shepherd God's flock among you. That is, uh, you are a role model, he says. We would call it among the people of God. And he says, let me give you three examples. And he offsets three examples with, do, with don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, but do this. Don't do this, but do this. And all these go to attitude and motivation of the pastor. First of all, he says, uh, don't lead out of compulsion, but willingly. That is to say, don't, don't do pastoral ministry because you have to. And he's talking about oversight there. The over, you're an overseer of the church. Don't oversee out of compulsion, but willingly. Don't do, you know, leading God's people can be a bit messy, especially that day in and day out thing. And, and there are a lot of things we do in routine, in and out, in and out. Every day we do a lot of the same things. And sometimes that becomes a grind even for the pastor. And particularly when the pastor has to clean up after the sheep now and then, it gets a little bit messy. And the shepherd has to say, well, do I want to keep leading this flock? And what if the flock is not terribly grateful? What if you got that one or two that want to run off and do their own thing? And after a while, the pastor, the shepherd might say, I'm just doing this because I have to do this. Peter says, no, here's your attitude. Your attitude is, I get to do this. As long as God lets me, I am willing to do what God wants me to do. To do Not out of compulsion, but willingly. The term translated willingly could also be translated deliberately or with an attention to detail. Get up every day, Peter means, paying attention to the flock. What do they need today? What do you need to do today? You're not there just out of duty to punch a clock or do this or that. You're there because God called you there. So what are the needs for today? Overseeing is managing the flock. It's that day-by-day thing pastors do all the time. Peter says, do it willingly. Do it willingly, as God would have you to do it. Uh, Not out of greed for money, but eagerly. This goes to the attitude of greed. It doesn't, Peter's not saying, don't pay your pastor. In fact, just uh, several years ago, I was visiting a family, and the uh, oldest Son came in while I was there, a grown adult, happened to live nearby, and he came in while I was there, and he sat down, and we, had, we were having a nice visit with the family. And he chimed in, and he said, I don't think that we should pay you. This was a bit of a surprise. He said, and I'm not making this up, he said, I think you should grow your own food. You and your wife should have a garden, and you should grow your own food, because He said, I don't think the Bible teaches that we should pay pastors. I said, well, I'm going to need to correct you on that 
the Bible does teach the church should take care of its pastor. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the whole chapter. He was totally surprised. Never heard that before. Was completely convinced that Kim and I should be growing our own food. Now, there's a few problems with that. Not the least of us, if it were left up to me to grow our food, we would starve. Kim came from a farmer's family. I did not. But what I didn't ask him, and which probably has already occurred to you, while I'm spending all that time growing the food, who's going to be doing pastoral ministry? See, this is why the Bible teaches that the flock, in the case of the church, takes care of the shepherd. And that the shepherd should be taken care of in a way that he doesn't have to worry about those other things and he can manage the flock and take care of and lead the flock. So Peter's admonition is not about whether or not you take care of the flock. His admonition to the pastor is, don't get greedy. You're not doing this for the money. But instead, he says, do this eagerly. That is, with a passion, even a zeal. Not greed. See, greed is the tainted side of zeal. Zeal and, and eagerness are healthy when you pursue a goal. He says, that, that's what your pastoral ministry should be like. And then last, he says, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. In short, what he means by this is, uh, you are a steward pastor. Practice that stewardship. Serve alongside them. The image of lording it over someone with a lowercase l. He's not talking about the Lord, but lording it over someone was the image of the ancient world of a what we would call a toxic boss. Uh, the boss who commands people what to do but has no interest in doing it with them. And the Bible teaches consistently, in fact, Jesus taught that the pastor's leadership and all church leadership is servant leadership. It's not bossy leadership. It's not lording it over someone. And the pastor does have authority. That's an acknowledged Fact, and Peter implies that here, you do have some authority in the church. You have the authority Christ has conferred on you, but you don't get to lord that authority over the flock by bossing them around and telling them what to do. As a pastor, you're a servant. You come alongside the flock. These people, Peter says to the pastor, are entrusted to you. Take that seriously. Come alongside them, serve with them, and be an example of how to serve Christ. He doesn't say, be perfect, pastor, in all that you do. But he says, in what you do, be an example of what you do. Would you agree that in our culture, the whole idea of morally fit role models is in trouble? Uh, we have teachers that are turning to pornography and leaving the teaching profession. There's a problem with that. In the church, pastoral pastors and Christian leaders of all kinds are role models to those who come up. We, we serve by example. And it starts with the pastor and it goes to you. Parents, remember, you serve by example. Uh, when, when, when Peter says, shepherd God's flock among you, it means they're watching you. 
as an example. How do we do ministry, Pastor Bob? How do we reach people for Christ, Pastor Bob? How do we study the Word of God, Pastor Bob? What do we do when we're hurting, Pastor Bob? What do we do when our family member has gone away from the faith, Pastor Bob? What do we do when this happens in our lives and that happens in our lives? And There are solid biblical answers for that. We apply those together. I come alongside. We do that together. And when you see me serve, you should be seeing me serve the way God wants us all to serve. doesn't mean I'm perfect. But hopefully you can say, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. And I can come alongside you while you do it. We serve by example. We lead by example. That's what servant leaders do and what we were always meant to do. Parents, you do the same thing. Guess who's watching you? As you lead by example as well. One more thing Peter says. A pastor in a church, leading a church that, that's pressed by a hostile world, leads with expectation. Leads with expectation. Verse 4, And when the chief shepherd appears, he said, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Here he uh, bounces off of a statement about greed and pictures compensation. The term translated receive means compensation. It says, pastors... Your church should take care of you while you're here, yes, but here's your payment. This is what your payment's going to look like. One day when Jesus Christ appears again in the flesh, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the great shepherd of the sheep, the one you serve, when he appears again, you will be paid for your service because you will receive an unfading crown of glory. Again, an image of the ancient world uh, was the athletic games when each winner would stand up on a pedestal and, and they would be uh, handed, on, they would bend over and they would be given on their head a, a laurel wreath, a crown of glory is what they called it. But everybody knew that was made of vines and leaves and flowers and one day, not long from that day, it would fade away, it would wither, it would die, it would blow away. Peter says, listen pastor, here's what you need to keep in mind. One day the great shepherd of the sheep is going to come and when he comes, he's going to recognize you and you're going to stand on that pedestal and for your faithfulness, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. We aspire to that. I don't have to be great in this life. I just have to be faithful to Him. I need to remember that He knows what I'm doing and you need to remember He knows what you're doing and that one day, someday, He is coming back and when He does... He will acknowledge our faithfulness to Him. I, I, I appreciate the occasional attaboy. Thank you so much for pastor appreciation. That's always a blessing. But let's keep in mind the one who's watching. The one who I serve. The one who will return. And when He does, I want to be found faithful. Don't you? I want to be found The Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. Then in early 1942, they began to move across the Pacific and they uh, converged on the Philippines. And, were, and were, the attack on the Philippines was already underway in March of 1942 
when MacArthur was called by Roosevelt to go to Australia, to leave the Philippines and go to Australia. MacArthur for a long time had said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not leaving the Philippines. I'm not leaving the army here. And Roosevelt said, it's time to go. So he acquiesced. He said he would leave and he would go to Australia. But before he did that, and by now, it was March of 1942, and the Japanese troops had moved far enough south in the Philippines, they were at Bataan. And Bataan was now the stronghold for the United States Army. And before MacArthur left, uh, he brought Jonathan Wainwright, General Jonathan Wainwright, loved by his troops, known by the nickname Skinny, Skinny Wainwright, an old cavalry officer. He brought him to him and he said, I'm leaving for Australia, but I will be back. And he said, Jonathan, hold here. Hold here. Stand firm and hold here, and I will be back. And Wainwright looked at MacArthur and he said, I might be dead, but I'll be in Bataan. MacArthur left. Not long after that, uh, Wainwright, who, and this is one of the reasons he was so loved by his troops, uh, Wainwright, one afternoon, he could hear the shelling in the distance. He knew the Japanese were nearing it closer and closer inland. He, he told his Navy lieutenant driver and assistant, he said, I, I want to go down to the troops. We need, we need to drive down there. I want to see what's going on. Uh, so the Navy lieutenant brought the Jeep around. They brought another truck around. They loaded up some other uh, uh, entourage and soldiers, and they, they headed down to where the Japanese were mercilessly shelling Bataan. The shells were blasting in over the treetops, landing in all places, and nonstop shelling and explosions all around the troops. And the troops had all dug into foxholes, and all the foxholes were sandbagged. And here comes Wainwright uh, with his lieutenant and another truck behind him, and they, they got into the battle area. It was so loud, and the bombs were falling so fast that his entourage bailed out. The lieutenant jumped into a foxhole, and so did everyone else that was with him except Wainwright. And the lieutenant would write this story later. Here's what he said. He said, General Wainwright sat in the jeep for just a few minutes, and he scanned the soldiers that he saw around him, and he recognized a captain that he had known in Virginia at a prior time. So calmly, as if nothing's happening around him, there's no war going on, Wainwright gets out of the jeep, he walks over to the captain, he sits down on the sandbag facing the captain who's in a foxhole with all these other troops in the foxhole with his back to the shelling, and he took the captain by the arm and he said, hey son, how you doing? And the lieutenant would write later that Wainwright sat there on that sandbag and talked to that captain calmly until the shelling stopped that afternoon. They all loaded up and they all headed back for headquarters. And on the way, the lieutenant said he turned to Wainwright and he said, General, I've got to ask you, and maybe even protest a little bit. He said, General, you are valuable to the troops. You can't expose yourself that way. You can't risk your life that way. Why would you do that? And as he would say, as he, as he recorded it later, Wainwright said to the lieutenant, he said, son, a general's job is to give the troops what they need. A general's job is to give the troops ammunition, food, 
water, recreation. I cannot give them any of those things right now. These men are nearly out of ammunition. They are starving to death. And as you saw out there today, they are dying for their country. I can't give them those things. But what I can do is be with them. He said that my presence sometimes matters more than the things that I can give them or that I can do for them. And he said, son, if that's all I can do for them, I will sit with them on the sandbag as long as I need to. While we await the return of the great shepherd of the sheep, our general, while we await his return, this is the meantime. And in the meantime, until the general, the great shepherd of the sheep returns, this shepherd is what you've got. I can't give you everything you need, but I can be here with you. I can teach, I can lead, I can help, I can pray. And in the meantime, that's just what we've got. Well, let's do that together. One day, someday, I'll probably, God willing and by his grace, stand up there and bend over while he puts on me that crown of glory. Not because I've been great, but because he's been great through me and he's done it for you. This is the meantime. In the meantime, let's be faithful together. Can we do that? How does this apply to you? Let me ask you one more thing before we close out. What's the evidence of your experience with Christ? If somebody said, are you living for Christ? What's your experience with Christ? How would you answer that? And how is he using your experience as a disciple? How is he using that in his service? What about your, your example to others? What's your, your example? If someone said, if I watch your life as a disciple of Jesus, what will I see? Are you faithful to him? And what's the demonstration of your expectation? Do you live your life in Christ now? Showing that one day, someday, you're going to stand before him. He will return, and at his appearing, will he find you faithful to him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are here before you humbly because of Christ. Not because we're good enough, but because you've called us out. Each one of us here, Father, I pray we know that we've been saved. We have trusted Christ and Christ alone, His death on the cross, His resurrection for our redemption and our eternal life. And if not, God, may we do that today. I pray each one of us here and at home, God, can also say as a believer in Christ, I am doing my best to follow Christ. I'm doing it willingly, eagerly, freely, following Christ and letting Him use me. And I pray He would find me faithful. And I thank you, God, as a pastor, that for reasons that still baffle me, you called me. You called me to this service. I pray, God, you find me faithful every day, first as a disciple, as a follower of Christ, and then also as the pastor, the shepherd of this flock of sheep in the meantime. And in the meantime, God, may we all be faithful to Christ. 
I pray for decisions we need to make today, God. Maybe you've, you've struck a tone with someone here about faithfulness. Maybe you've struck a note with someone here about leadership, about servanthood, about being a role model, an example. God, I pray today we would make those decisions that would grow us in faith. I pray for that one who needs Christ as their Savior, that in a moment they would come forward, trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. I pray for us, God, in whatever commitments we need to make, we would make those today. And may all that we do glorify Christ. And it's in his precious name we pray. Amen.